Thank you, Jacob. Thank you, Krista. What a blessing that is. I told Jacob a number of weeks ago, I think I've probably listened to that song 35 times in a row. It is one of my favorite um, modern hymns by City Light, and they just do a really great job of really focusing on the whole message of Scripture, which is that complete journey, which was not I, but Christ completing that in us. And so what a joy it is to sing those truths. And of course, now we're going to turn to the Word of God. We've spent time in prayer. We've spent time at worshiping Him in music, and now we're going to worship Him in the reading of the Word. So I invite you to turn there. First Timothy chapter 4 is where we are. We're in a continued study. If you've been with us, instructions for the church for teaching, leading, and equipping. That's that study through First and Second Timothy and Titus. In particular, guidelines for public worship. That was really the, uh, the reason for the letters Paul wrote to Timothy. He says in chapter 3 of First Timothy that if I am delayed in coming, I want you to know how you are to conduct yourselves in the household of faith, which is the pillar and support of the truth. And so uh, really what we read here is what's supposed to go on in the church. And so that's where we are. So if you've missed some of that, you can catch up on it. And of course, I'll give you a little review today. But we welcome our students too today. I know some of them are coming in today. Next week, I think most of our students will be back. And we're glad that you're back. We pray that we'll be able to help you. If we can do anything to help your uh, transition back to school, uh, be better, let us know. But let's learn, let turn, if you would. We're going to be in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 6. And so look there. I would be reading from New American Standard. Uh, you just read and, and uh, study from the version that you normally do, and I'll give you some verse cues, and your understanding will be enriched. Look at verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, Paul says, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine with which you've been following. Verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Verse 8, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Verse 9, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Verse 10, for it is for this we labor and strive because we've fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Stop right there. Now, we know that the passages we're looking at today come on the heels of verses 1 through 5, where Paul describes the church of the future, and the trouble is already in Ephesus. He's looking on into the future, and those problems there were people falling away and following false teachers who teach demon doctrine. And just look with me, if you would, just a reminder, look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says, Paul says to Timothy, that in the latter times, so not only now, but even more in the future, some will fall away from the faith. And that's nothing new to us. We understand people falling away. It gives some of the reason, though, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, verse 2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. So doctrines of demons spoken with human voices in false teachers teaching what's not true, and they've done it for so long, and they've misinformed their conscience for so long, they don't even think about what they're saying and that being wrong. You may hear it and think, how could they say that? They're really trying to deceive everyone. But really the idea is here is that they don't understand they're deceiving anyone anymore because they haven't been informed for so long. So men, he says, who forbid, verse 3, 
marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in those by, by those who believe and know the truth. So they're teaching ways of godliness, ways of spirituality, which are always man-made religion, uh, doing something or not doing something in order to be saved and be right with God. And so it's nothing new, continued on into today. And so for everything, it says, was created by God and is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. For it's sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. So you have that little synopsis of what's going on in the church now, what will go on in the future. People following away, they're following false teachers, they're listening to what they have to say, they're thinking they can accomplish salvation and spirituality on their own by excluding some things or doing some certain things. And we pointed out that's really not that different from what you see in a primitive tribe when they do all these kinds of things to themselves, they burn themselves and, and cut their fingers off and walk on coals and all this stuff thinking somehow they're going to be pleasing to God. And we go right up to the modern day church and you go to the Catholic church and, and you, you don't, if you're, if you're a priest, you don't marry, if you're a nurse, and uh, none you don't marry, and you abstain from food on Fridays, and you do all these kinds of things, and it's just exactly the same. It doesn't matter if it's sophisticated. It doesn't matter if it's primitive. It's the same kind of thing. We still see it today, and it's what Paul's talking about. Somehow accomplishing on your own some way to be spiritual by not doing or doing some outward activity. Uh, not eating something, not, uh, p- putting away from yourself marriage, all that kinds of things. Paul calls all of that doctrines of demons. All false teaching in general is doctrines of demons. It's uh, uh, a human voice saying what demons want people to hear. And we looked at that extensively. You can catch up with that if you missed any of that. But Paul gives an answer to all of that. He just points out that God created all those things for the good of man, and it's foolishness then to, uh, to exclude them. And then we get to verse 6, and we see Paul begin to turn around and kind of direct Timothy towards what true godliness is going to look like. And he's going to use some of the words and some of the concepts that false teachers have been using in their correct context so people can understand really what it looks like to be spiritual and what those disciplines are going to be like. And she shows Timothy where true holiness is and spiritual health, where they come from, in the pursuit of godliness. And that really is the focus now as we get to verse 6. Now, I think we can understand that uh, as we look at some of these wordings, and we'll get back to these and really break them down, but I think we could say, just in general, with physical health, there's going to be a rejection of junk food. Right? I mean, you're going to take in what's good, obviously, but, and to the extent that we reject the junk food, of course, is our own ability to say no to things we shouldn't have. But I think in general, people, can, whether they do it or not, would agree that rejecting junk food in a healthy diet is probably pretty important. Not only do you need to take in what's good, you've got to exclude what isn't good uh, on the whole. And so that healthy spiritual diet is going to avoid that same thing. A spiritual diet is going to avoid spiritual junk food. And that's really Paul's focus here. Although he's going to think about the physical, he's going to make the illustration from that physical to the actual application. And, and there's going to be some exercise involved with all of that. And this is the direction the Holy Spirit's carrying Paul. And, and here it is partially described as godless myths and old wives' tales. That's the junk food he's supposed to avoid. Now, he's just described what some of that looks like, but it's pretty broad. And uh, we're going to see that, you know, godless myths and old wives' tales take in a pretty broad application. In fact, a false teaching that was coming from the false teachers was godless. We'll look at this more in just a minute, but it was really radically opposite of what was holy. And when he called it old wives' tales, all he was doing is just, it was a sarcastic insult uh, frequently used in Greek philosophical arguments, meaning limitless credulity. In other words, along with all the other things and all the problems uh, that false teachers were bringing into the church, there was really no limit, that's the idea, of what they would say and believe. 
And I think if you, if you are involved in the modern church, especially the Pentecostal movement, uh, you will see that there's really no limit to what people will say from the pulpit and from, from a teaching position because that bottom of the bucket hasn't been scraped yet. And so that's what Paul says. It's just limitless credulity that um, there's a big concoction of false things being said. And, now, and we're going to take a look at those words that he uses here more closely in a moment. But in general, here in Ephesus, they had the history of the Old Testament really overlaid with these ridiculous legends and genealogies were getting, giving some absurd symbolism. And, and that's still very true today. There's many books, modern books out about uh, all numerology and all these kinds of things that you look in the Old Testament, you see all these names and in their order and somehow that's spiritual and that's how you understand a deeper knowledge. It's still just the same today. That was what's going on in Ephesus. And so they were sugarcoating all of this stuff with demon-inspired asceticism that promised spiritual superiority, and here particularly through sexual and dietary abstinence. So the whole thing, Paul says, is junk teaching. It's reject it, don't take it in. And Paul encourages Timothy to point these things out to the brother, and that's what he says in verse 1. And in so doing, he tells Timothy, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in literally nourishing yourself in the truths of the faith and the good teaching which you have followed. That was verse 6. And we saw last time there are two things that Timothy is to nourish himself on and then nourish the church with, if you will. First of all, words of faith. And we saw that phrase, the words of faith, uh, the word the is there as a definite article. It just refers to biblical or scriptural writing. He's going to nourish himself constantly on biblical or scriptural writing, and that's how he's going to nourish the church. And the words of the Christian faith is Scripture, the body of Christian truth contained in the Word of God. So he is to deal with the understanding and the interpretation and the application of the Word of God. That's what Paul wants to say to Timothy at the end of verse 6. And, and that's what uh, you want to be a good minister of Christ Jesus, then you have to be nourished and then nourish others in the church by the words of faith. And this is just so basic. It just seems like why would we even have to say it, right? 50 years ago, we probably wouldn't because most churches you go to would open the Word of God and would read the Word of God and to some extent explain it to the people because you were made for the Word of God as a believer. It is where you receive your nourishment. But you wouldn't know that now because many churches will go through the entire service and never open the Bible and give you platitudes and sermonettes and all kinds of things, life acts and whatever, and which are powerless to help you but make you feel good. And so this is this continuous process of feeding, this biblical scriptural writing, very, very important. And so uh, he's to deal with the understanding and the interpretation and the application of the Word of God, not, not something he wants to come up with. And so just so basic, a continual process it is of self-feeding, that's the idea, by reading and reading and reading and inwardly digesting and meditating and dialoguing and mastering the content of the Word of God. Now, we encourage you constantly here to be in the Word. We give you a lot of resources to do that. I continue to remind you that my teaching really is not in itself an end, but a way to show you how to read the Bible and compare Scripture with Scripture and come to the proper understanding. And so it's not just by itself. Somehow I want you to come away thinking that was a great sermon or that was a terrible sermon. It's a way to study the Bible. It's a way that I study, and it's a way to demonstrate how it can be done. Many times you hear a sermon and, and there's a bunch of things in there and people walk out and think, how did he even get that out of the passage? Well, I always chuckle to myself and say, because he put it in there at the beginning so he could pull it out at the end. The thing that you really don't want to do is put your own agenda out there and somehow pick it out of the scriptures and communicate it. What you want to do is read the word of God and make it clear to the people who are hearing because you've made it clear to yourself. 
And so I tell young pastors, you know, you're going to have to do the work. You're going to have to sit in the seat and you're going to have to master the section that you're going to teach. And then you communicate that to someone else. And whether it's a small group or your or children's church or whatever it is, you're making sure that you understand it and you communicate it. That's nourishing yourself and then nourishing the church. And that's, that scripture describes as a good minister of Christ Jesus. And so, you know, dialoguing it and mastering it, the content of the Word of God, rightly dividing it, so you're a workman who what? Needs not to be ashamed. You want to avoid shame in the Word of God? You want to miss out on the shame of people asking you very simple questions and you not being able to give the answer? Then diligently study the Word of God. And I told First Service this morning, I'm reminded numerous times as I've watched interviews of so, quote-unquote, Christian artists uh, that are in the public's eye, and then uh, some unsaved person comes up and interviews them and asks them the most basic of questions, which a third-grade person from Berean could have answered. And they come up with something that's nonsense. And I just think, that is so embarrassed. I'm very embarrassed for them. They should be super embarrassed to themselves that they couldn't come up with a clear answer of why evil is in the world and why wicked things happen. You can't answer that simple question. That this is sin in the world for which Christ came to die. This is the choices that men make. It's the, it's the express example of our depravity and our need for a Savior. That's just a very simple answer. And beloved, it doesn't take much reading to come up with that understanding. And yet, this escapes a lot of people. And that's just very embarrassing. That's what we want to avoid. So servants then of the church, whatever they are, wherever they're serving and whatever leadership capacity above and beyond all other elements of the ministry are to be skilled in the study of the Word of God. And mastering that is going to take a lifetime of study to comprehend it. But each day you have to regard that as the essence of your effectiveness. We're going to master the scripture, and of course, you're never going to do it, but that's our pursuit, because every time you read through it, every year, right, you're going to learn something new, you're going to dig in, and that's my encouragement to you, to read the Word of God through in a year, but not so that you can say you got the quantity done, but that you can continually be exposed to those things, the holy standard and the promises and God's nature and all of that, and you begin to comprehend that, and you're going to come to a spot then this next year in this one section, you go, I didn't understand that really last year. And so you're going to spend some time, you're going to dig around, and you're going to figure out that the Bible explains the Bible. Oh, that's what that means. And you, you, know, you have a good, uh, some good notes there where you can really track it down. And this is the important part. Not that you have that quantity of the Bible done every year. You know, I've read the Bible through however many times, but that you begin to assimilate it. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? That's the questions you ask all the time as you read through the Word of God. Why is the story there? What is it that the Lord wants me to take away? When you're teaching children, it's not enough to master the story only. It's not enough to master Noah or Abraham or whatever. You have to help the kids understand why did the Lord preserve this story in the Bible and then make sure that that is taught clearly. What should they come away with in the, in the essence of that story and why was it included? So servants of the church have to be very skillful in doing that and continue to master it. And, and someone who can defend and divide properly the Word of God, we, we need to be able to think that. We need to be able to be, think clearly and biblically and comprehend and biblically and speak biblically. Listen, this is your resource, and we're going to see in just a minute how important this is. This is your resource to comprehend biblically, to think biblically, to speak biblically. When people come and the Lord puts you in a position of trust where they, they unload their problems on you, they have some questions about their life and their relationship to Christ or whatever it is, this is where you're going to make sense of their life. See, 
This is where you're going to be able to point them in the right direction. Give them something for eternity. The more you understand the Word of God, the more effective a tool that you're going to be. And the Lord can use you to benefit those who are around you. And so that means you're going to have to spend a massive proportion of your time interacting with the text of Scripture. It's not enough to make sure you've got the curriculum down. I understand we're really program-oriented in the church now. We want to just have this package. We just deliver the package. We want to do it as smoothly as we can and as fun as we can and be an upbeat as we can. Listen, there's no power in any of that. The power is to be able to understand what the Word of God says. And it's a treasure that's inexhaustible and it demands a lifetime just to begin to understand the profound and full riches that are there. But that is the essence of your effectiveness. It's the idea that we're to, Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Not just that you've covered the text, but that you understand it richly and then all wisdom teaching. That's You understand the passage and then the questions come and you're able to, with wisdom, apply it to them. See, You understand that this applies to your situation admonishing them, teaching them, and then encouraging them with your own spirit that's so been enriched by the Word of God with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, thankfulness, all of that. It's profitable. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what? Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. It's all profitable. So that means we study all of it. We take it in. And we take it in in segments. We ask the questions we're supposed to ask so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped. The author writes, says, thoroughly furnished. I like equipped because it's, it's very, very little or literal. But I think thoroughly furnished, as they interpreted it first, it just has the idea of a house that has everything you need to function every day from now on. It's thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is profitable. So what is the implication? Apply yourself to it. Understand what it says. These things are all true, and we know they are. And the issue then, beloved, is not how good a communicator you are. The issue is, how well do you know the Word of God? How well do you know it? And that's the problem in some churches today. They think people would rather be entertained instead of instructed. And so there's been this downward drift towards entertainment as opposed to teaching people. But the words of faith are important not entertainment. And secondly, so firstly, you're focusing on the words of faith. That's the actual scripture. And secondly, Paul says, you're going to be nourished and then nourish others on sound doctrine. We've already touched on this, but that just is what scripture affirms. So first he says the words of faith, that's the actual scripture. And then the theology, if you will, that flows out of that understanding. That's sound doctrine. This is the application of the biblical truth. The action that's required. What does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? And then this part, our current phrase, how does that apply to my life? Or how does that apply to the church? Or my thinking on this issue? Or, or whatever the words are addressing. And these two things are imperative then for the health of the minister and those they minister to. And it's like we said last time, Spurgeon said it this way, quote, you may go up into your pulpit, you may illustrate, explain, and enforce the truth with mighty rhetoric, you may charm your hearers, you may hold them spellbound, but no eloquence of yours, mark it, can raise the dead. Another voice other than ours must be heard. 
You can do whatever you want and you can give life hacks and you can give uh, little sermonettes and whatever. But if it's not God's voice they're hearing, nobody's coming back from the dead. And not just that, if you just look at Ephesians 4, nobody's going to be equipped for works of service and no building up of the body of Christ and no attaining the unity of faith and no measure of maturity in a man or woman and no longer to be children easily fooled and tricked and grow up in all aspects unto him who's the head, even Christ. And you're not going to do the proper working of each individual or the growth of the body. And that's just one section of scripture. Another voice than yours is going to have to be heard. Now you can make it look slick and it can look nice and it can sound good. It can be pretty and it can be worthless. And as I've told you before, I I think in general, the church today is a mile wide and an inch deep. They haven't studied. They're not getting it from the pulpit. And so there's no example there. They're not being encouraged to study it themselves. And so when the, when the questions come and the troubles of life come, they immediately res- go the fleshly way. And they justify it. Well, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. If I've heard that once, I've heard that a hundred times. God wouldn't want me to be unhappy for, for uh, divorces that aren't, aren't biblical. God wouldn't want me to be single all my life. I'm really sorry that you think God's all about your happiness and your, and, and your prosperity. God's about your holiness. He's about disciples, right? He's about submitting to what the Word of God says. This is the issue in the church today. But it's modeled bad, very badly from the small group leaders and from the pulpit and, and, and children's church and whatever. They're not in the Word. Nobody else is following that example, right? And so we just don't understand what the Word of God says. And this is what we're not supposed to do. This is how we're embarrassed. This is how we, to avoid that, to avoid that, we have to be in it. And all scriptures, God breathes, 2 Timothy 3.16. In the very essence of reading the Word of God, you stand in the breath of God. That's the idea. It's God's voice they have to hear. And that, and that voice is only going to be heard through words of faith and sound doctrine, which will be found through faithful, verse-by-verse, exegetical, expository preaching, comparing Scripture with Scripture. That's the only way you're going to understand it. You know, me pulling out something and then putting together whatever I want to say and use one verse to proof text it, that is not going to help you grow. Any more than you trying to read through the Bible by just opening the Bible, whatever it falls open to, that's what you're going to read to that day. Listen, you can do that for 30 years, and you're still going to need your concordance to find the most basic things in the Word of God. So don't do it that way. Now, it's important, and I don't think you are, and I, and I agree with Paul here. He's very positive here. He says to Timothy, after he says, nourish yourself in the church on, uh, on sound doctrine, words of faith, he says, which you have been following. And so he's not chastening Timothy as if it's not happening. And I know that it's, it, you guys are doing what you're supposed to do here. He's, he's already developing those habits. He just says, listen, continue to do this. A good diet makes a good minister. The most effective ministers have been those who persevered as students of the Word. I tell young pastors all the time, stay in the seat until the work is done. Master it and then teach it. Don't get up before you're done. Don't t- don't sh- there's no shortcuts to this. And Paul repeatedly adamant about this to Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. How are you going to do that? Studying what the Word says. Doesn't need to be ashamed because he correctly handles the word of truth. That's cutting a straight cut. Has the idea of, of making a jig and you're going to have to make 50 of these things. So you make this jig and you cut them all out and they all fit where they're supposed to fit. Doesn't matter where they are. You, if, if you've come to the understanding of a word, if you, if you believe you understand, you've comprehended what is exactly being said, you should be able to take that word out of that spot and bring it over to another spot where the same word is used. You should have no problems plugging it in. If you've come to the right conclusion, that's the idea. Rightly handling, accurately handling the word of truth. 
Very important. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word and be prepared. How are you going to be prepared? By taking some time and sitting in the seat and with great patience, pulling out the meaning. Prepared in season, out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful, he says, instruction. So, if he does that, he gets the title if he has the discernment. And that was principle number one for us. Paul focuses on true godliness. He tells Timothy, listen, don't keep all this false teaching to yourself, this understanding of these uh, old wives' tales and all of this stuff. Tell the church, part of being a faithful minister is going to be confronting false teaching and constantly pointing out biblical principles that help correct the thoughts of those who are around you. You want them to think biblically, to understand biblically, to converse biblically. All the things Paul's given Timothy are the examples. But we're not limited to just these things. The Word of God is the source, but he uses the word here, servant, so it's not just elder now. As we got through chapter 3, he was talking to the elders, overseers of the church. Here he just says servant. And that's, that's our word that we've looked at before, diakonos. But he's not talking about Timothy being a deacon. He's just saying Timothy is obviously a servant of the church. And so it makes it much more broad. Not just, you know, when you're looking at uh, chapter 3, you're thinking, okay, well, pastors have to do that. Well, that's at one standard of godliness. The pastor has to be an example of that godliness, and you have to live up to that too. But he can't do what he's doing, where you can still attend and you're not living up to that godliness. He can't do what he wants to do in the pulpit if he doesn't. So when we get to this point, we understand that these things are given as an example, and Timothy is a servant of the church. It's appointed the service to be found faithful, right? That's what Paul said in Romans. So it's very, very important that he's referring to Timothy, obviously, as a servant of the church. And we know Paul's focus has become very broad because he uses this word. So anyone in charge of ministry can be brought in here. Anyone working to build the kingdom from a leadership position. And when this focus is weighed out as a primary emphasis, then this qualifies you to be considered a good servant. And everybody wants, everybody desires that title, a good servant of the Lord. Well done, faithful servant. That's what we hear a lot of times at funerals. People say, well, I'm sure when he got there, he, the Lord said, well done, faithful servant. Well, I think that was contingent, wouldn't you say? It's not always well done, faithful servant. Some people come in by the skin of their teeth and the robe of righteousness only. Some people, when they take the house and it's judged, right, a lot of it is wood, hay, and stubble and not gold and silver. So there's only just a little bit left, right? So it's not automatically you're a good servant. You're a good servant in the respect that you do what you're supposed to do. And this is very clear here. A good servant, a faithful minister of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. You must be continually nourished by the revealed word of God because that's how you're going to nourish the church. And so that was principle number two. True godliness in a faithful teacher is found in a diet constantly nourished on the word of God. If you want the congregation to be healthy, put your focus on being in the word yourself. You're going to be healthy and you'll be able to make the correct application. So you're going to have something to say. It's one of the major problems in the modern church. They, they aren't being nourished by the Word of God, and so they can't nourish anyone else. And it can look good, and it can sound good, and it can feel good, and it can be spiritually worthless. Now look back at verse 7. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for old women. So now we see that context. We realize that this false teaching and these things that they shouldn't be listening to uh, are part of what Timothy has to understand. And now in pursuing godliness, we have this third principle, which we started with at the beginning of the day. Number three, true godliness in a faithful teacher is found in a diet that refuses, as we said, refuses the junk food of ungodly teaching. So understand it this way. A faithful teacher is going to exclude it from his diet. So, as strong as Paul expects Timothy to be, 
as strong as he expects servants to be because they're constantly nourished on the Word of God and on the doctrine, okay? As strong as they are from that daily nourishment from the Word, the flip side of that is they, were, they should be equally disinterested in ungodly teaching. So that means they have to exclude that from their life. Have nothing to do with, very strong. That's an English phrase, but it has one word, it's one word in the Greek. Paratithemi. To avoid or to pay no attention to, to reject. The idea of shunning something. Present, middle, imperative. So you're involved in the shunning. It has to be part of your active life, and it's in the imperative, which means it's not optional. You shun things that are wicked. Have nothing to do with them. If you're studying the Word of God closely enough, then you won't need to, and you're not supposed to, study the false. And by the way, they were teaching people to avoid things that God created for man's good, which Paul called doctrines of demons. Instead, Paul says, you want the right diet. You want to pursue godliness? Then avoid worldly fables fit only for old women. And that word worldly, bebelos, anything that is fundamentally separate from what is holy profane things, anything that contradicts the Lord, avoid them, shun them, reject them, stay away from them. And then it says fables fit only for old women. That word fables is the Greek noun muthos. It's where we get our word myth. Now the question is, what's a myth? What do we have to stay away from that's a myth? It seems like an old-fashioned word, and we think about, you know, fables that we read to our kids at night or whatever. That's not what he's talking about. And we can make it clear what he is saying as we look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. He says this, and we get the clear definition and understanding of what he means by have nothing to do with worldly fables. Here he says in verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, so, again, we're going to get to 2 Timothy 4. We're going to see, he's going to talk about the future of the church. People who won't endure sound doctrine. They don't want to hear what we just got through talking about, that the minister is supposed to study and make sure he understands before he gives it to the church. They won't endure that. Instead, they want to have their ears tickled. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They just want to be affirmed. And we see that in a lot of the Protestant churches today. They just want to affirm every position, every, every moral position is affirmed, every, every decision you have for your own private life, whatever. We just want to be affirmed and have an open mind about it. This is precisely where we are today. Paul says, listen, that's going to be more and more in the future. They're just going to accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Verse 4, now mark this, and will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside unto myths. So what do we have there? We have the truth set out in God's Word, and everything else that isn't true, that isn't according to the Word of God, it disagrees with what the Word of God is, that's what Paul's talking about. So simply, truth and muthos are seen as opposite. So what he's saying here is, you are to be nourished up in the words of the faith and the good doctrine, but you are to refuse anything that's opposite of the truth. And that means, as we've said before, you have to saturate yourself with it, read it, and read it, and read it, and study so that you'll know what's wrong with bad teaching when you hear it, and then you avoid it. And that's what ends up happening. As you read the Bible long enough, you'll hear something, you'll say, no, that doesn't sound right. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is speaking to your own spirit and making it clear that what just got said is not biblical. How do you know that? Because you've been reading your Bible long enough and studying it and applying it and thinking about it that you know that that's not right. And this is precisely where the Lord wants us. He doesn't want us to be undiscerning. He wants us to be discerning. He doesn't want us to be deceived. He wants us to be astute and know what to say and know how to say it. And so this is very important as, it, as you think about uh, not only being strong in what the Bible says, but to exclude from your life these other things. 
Refuse anything that's opposite of the truth. So you saturate yourself and you know what's wrong. And of course, we live in an age where lots of people want things packaged and they don't want to do the hard work. And so they're not going to do that. They're not going to spend time studying and not going to spend time saturating themselves. And even worse, every idea is presented with equal merit. No matter what position morally you hold or doctrinally, it must all be equal because people are so sincere in believing it. Which seems so absurd that, like I said 50 years ago, you have all these doctrinal statements and all through the history of the church, these direct doctrinal meetings that said this is precisely what the Word says and this is what we're going to teach. And so, but now it's just all thrown in the wind, right? Now it's just, you know, if you believe it sincerely, it must, must have some merit. If we accept that all with sincerity, and you know, if that last point is indeed the case, and we have to accept every position is valid, then this entire passage is meaningless. There's no point in teaching this passage if every position doctrinally is equally valuable. So that should tell you a little bit about that position, and that, as I told you before, that hermeneutic of humility, which is, I couldn't possibly tell you that you're wrong and that I'm right. I'm too humble to do that. I can't possibly understand the mind of God well enough to know and say that you're wrong in your position, see? And that just sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? And, and it makes you then, if you are someone who says, no, that's wrong, this is, this, is a, this is a correct understanding of the Word of God, then you are the one that looks stupid and inflexible and judgy. See? So it's flipped everything on its head. That's the opposite of where we're supposed to be. Now Paul modifies muthos, and he calls it fit only for old women. And we saw in a cultural context, we just said last time, just a little bit ago, it limitless credulity. There's just really no limit to what they would believe and teach. And so Paul tells Timothy and every other individual who desires to serve in the kingdom, exclude from your spiritual diet anything that's opposed to what's holy and reject anything that's opposite of the truth. And that's very broad there. It's almost no limit because there's almost no limit to what's going to be said. So you're going to have to be able to be discerning. Transforming the mind is a precious thing, see? Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us that, that will, that's what we have to do. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the what? By the renewing of your mind. How are you going to renew your mind? The only way you're going to be able to do that and be able to think correct thoughts and have a conscience that, that tells you correctly when you need to change is to be in the Word of God every single day, to rightly divide it. And for the one who serves in leadership in the spiritual realm, God wants a pure mind, saturated with the truth of the Word of God. There's no place for the almost infinite variety of shallow, radical, ignorant imaginations of the deceived. That's what you're supposed to avoid. There's no limit to that. Now, let's look at the last part of verses 7 and 8. On the other hand, he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So he's talking about diet. What's the diet? To take in the Word of God, to take in the doctrines, to exclude the junk food, to have a pure mind, to know right from wrong and, and choose right. And he says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Verse 8, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, verses 7 and 8 go very well as we understand Paul's focus here, not on excluding foods that God made for the benefit of man or an ascetic diet or excluding marriage or whatever and somehow to be holy. The true spiritual diet of being nourished on the word of God and rejecting the junk of bad or poor theology, deluded by the thoughts and the imaginations of deceived men, reject all of that, and along with all of that, any healthy diet, it's going to include what? Exercise. With any healthy diet, you're going to have to include exercise, and Paul doesn't skip over it here. 
So in pursuing godliness, we have this fourth principle, number four. A good servant, true godliness in a servant, is marked in a faithful teacher by training in personal godliness. That's the idea. A training in personal godliness. The issue in ministry is godliness. Again, in addition to what we saw last time, it seems fairly apparent that those who minister are often evaluated on the basis of wrong criteria. And so I just want to pause here, just draw this to your attention. A lot of times those who minister and the effectiveness of a pastor or those who minister is, is evaluated on the size of the ministry or the reputation or the education. Sometimes ministers are praised because of their popularity or their building program or their organizational skills or their oratory skills. But as we recall the things we've seen so far, none of those things are mentioned. They are invalid from a biblical sense. And as we get to this verse, we can add, it isn't how witty you are, it isn't how slick you are, it isn't how intelligent you are, or what a good communicator you are. It is, do you know the Word of God? Do you have a pure mind that's excluded those things that are not true and things that are worldly from your mind? Are you godly? Because the ministry is an overflow out of that. It's an overflow out of that. And that's not surprising, is it? Because we just spent almost all of chapter 3 looking at a ministry as an overflow of the character of an elder. In fact, we saw he can't even serve as an elder if his, the character of his life, the testimony of his life, the outcome of his family don't meet those qualifications that are listed there. He can't even serve. It's an outflow of that. In fact, family was the biggest focus. If he can't bring his children into subjection and his wife underneath him in godliness, then he can't even serve in the church. That's a measure of leadership. It's foundational. So it's not surprising that Paul emphasizes this issue of personal godliness as a foundation for everyone who serves as a minister. Now let's look at the words Paul uses, and we're going to explain them in that way because Paul uses some really key phrases that everyone's going to pick up on. I look back, it says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. Now that verse, that, that uh, discipline yourself as the Greek verb gubnadzo combined with a reflexive pronoun. So it, it's a verb that has to do with where we get our word gymnasium, working out, present active imperative. So the word means to exercise in like manner to an athletic effort. So it's a hard workout. Now, as soon as he uses the word gubnadzo, everybody knows what he's talking about. Now, there's some related words there, and we know from Greek culture that have to do with naked connected to gymnazo, and that was part of the immorality that was part of Greek culture. But in general, when you went to the gymnasium, you worked out naked. I'm so glad that we don't do that now because nobody wants to see that, okay? But that's what they did. They thought clothing restricted your movement and all of that. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's just saying, just in general, work out. Now, he's going to define that very clearly for us. And again, it's in the command form. So don't expose yourself to anything contrary to the truth and do work out in godliness. And beloved, it implies every single thing that goes along with a workout. Rigorous, strenuous, self-sacrificing kinds of training. And he picks this word and he takes on the whole training definition that goes along with it. Because nearly everyone in Greek culture is going to know what goes on here. Every city had a gymnasium. Everyone, especially the young, would be was spending lots of time here. Very similar to today, the gym culture is pretty relevant uh, and, and pretty prevalent to, to our culture. Physical training was prized. It was esteemed. 
There were people into body beautiful and into exercise, into training. You see it in the artwork. You see because most Greek artwork has no clothing and a chiseled body. This is something they thought was important. And uh, it sounds pretty familiar, though, to us. Uh, we're in that same kind of situation today. We do it for body beautiful. We do it for health. We do it for a competitive edge. And, and let me just say, there's nothing wrong with those things. And so he uses this word, and he has everyone's attention, and, and they know what he's saying, and then he says, exercise, um, and, and NSB translated discipline, but it's the word exercise. Exercise yourself for the purpose of godliness. So you're on the right diet, you're excluding the wrong things, now you need exercise. And, and if you're going to train, go into training for godliness. Go into training for virtue. Go into training for the inner man, for the soul and the spirit. This has to do with worship and devotion and sincere spiritual integrity and holiness. Keep yourself in training for godliness is the way we would translate that present active imperative. Keep yourself in training for godliness. Now, as we think about physical training, right, I, I remember um, uh, my son, who's a student doctor, he, we were talking before because he goes through a number of disciplines, and he said this, and I heard this from a number of other, other uh, guys here who work in this field. I wish you could take a pill and put everything that you get as a benefit from exercise and let people take it because there's just so much. I wish you could bottle that all up and you just take that because the exercise impacts so many things. It has so many applications to disease and, and, and curing and all the kinds of things that go along with exercise. So it's an important part of life, no question. And Paul's not denigrating that section of it, okay? And you may remember from our study of the two letters in the Corinthian, uh, to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul says this, very similar wording. He says, but I, here's our word, Gymnazo, discipline, I exercise my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. That's the same idea. I discipline my body and I bring my body under, under uh, authority. Remember Paul said in Romans chapter 6, he says, don't allow your body to rule you like a king. Remember that? But instead present the members of your body as instruments for righteousness. See, that's very important, isn't it? Because the body's where we have the problems, isn't it? We're the new you on the we're the new you on the inside. On the outside, where all the all the uh, uh, appetites still are. And so you have to bring your body into subjection. That's, those are the things that cause you trouble. And Paul says here, I work out my body and I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I won't be disqualified myself. This is precisely what we're talking about in our passage. That's the same idea. We saw a similar statement later in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, he says, having these promises, so all the things the Lord has done for us, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting, here it is, holiness in the fear of God. Working on holiness, perfecting it. It's not just kind of drifting along. Christianity has no demands on me. I have my own personal Jesus, and, and he and I have a, uh, you know, an understanding. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There's some application for you, a volitional response. Building up the inner man to be strong and capable in serving the will of God. A beautiful spiritual body. A beautiful spiritual mind. A competitive edge on the wicked world. Let's just use all the, uh, all the, the, the things that are connected to working out and faithfully getting in the gym, right? You want a competitive edge? You want a competitive edge on the wicked world? You'll get it if you discipline yourself spiritually. Able to be put in the lineup, all right? It, you know, because God can use you in an important set of plays for the kingdom and for souls because you're ready for that. You've disciplined yourself. That means to know God's will 
and to do God's will. That's spiritual discipline. That's training to doing and doing it right over and over. It helps muscle memory. It helps strength. It helps stamina and quickness and reaction time. Train yourself then in that way so that you can answer more quickly when people have a question for you. So that your first responses are more rapid and they're godly. See? Training yourself for the purpose of godliness produces those end results. You're going to be in the Word of God. You're going to be applying it to your life. You're going to see that happen. When you start, your mind goes a certain way. You're going to rein those thoughts in, taking those thoughts captive. See, the Lord's given you the ability to begin to move towards sanctification. That's really what this is. Looking more like Christ. See, train yourself to know God's will. Train yourself to do God's will. On a regular basis, make the decision to not sin. Make the decision to move in the direction that God wants you to do. Put to death those deeds of the flesh. And we're going to see this later in our study, but 2 Timothy 2.3 says, and Paul's not done with these admonitions, he says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Try that in the average megachurch. Mega You're going to have to suffer hardship. They want prosperity. Okay? They want affirmation. They want to feel good. I don't want to suffer hardship. I want to avoid hardship. Right? If God really loves me, I won't have any hardship. That, that's the false doctrine you hear all the time. Paul says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I'm no soldier. I don't want to be a soldier. I want to just ride along in the, you know, in the pleasure cruise and pad myself with Christian pillows so nothing really affects me too much that I don't like. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete... There we go. He does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. True training is hard and it's painful. Reining in the thoughts and the flesh, that's not easy. Putting away from yourselves places where you trip up all the time, being wise enough to know how to rein your own body. First Thessalonians says, take care of your own vessel in sanctification and honor. What's that imply? That maybe we're not doing that, but you know how and you have the ability. And here, you can't get tangled up in the affairs of everyday life. What's that mean? It just means that it can't be more important than kingdom work. I mean, you have to do it clearly. You're going to have to go provide for the needs of your family. These are very important issues. And in order to adorn the gospel, you work hard and you make your employer be profitable. These are all good things. The Lord's pleased with this. But, but when it consumes your thoughts and all your time, then there's a problem. Verse 5, also if anyone competes as an athlete, he doesn't win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. And again, Paul uses a word that grabs everybody's attention here in, in 2 Timothy 2.3, athlos. And, and that has to do with a contest in the public eye. That means an athlete at a very high level. People are watching you perform. If you desire that, you're not going to win the crown unless you keep the rules. So stay within God's rules. What, rules? That's so judgy. God has rules? we got to do what he says? Yeah, actually. That's precisely the teaching of the Word of God. Keep the rules. Stay within God's rules. Confine yourself to God's standards. You know, I, I coached track for a long time as my sons were coming up. You know, you can only start a certain way on certain runs. Did you know that? You can't do it however you want. And your toes got to be in a certain place, and there's certain things you can't do before the gun goes off. And if you do, you're disqualified. That's not going to happen. And you know, if you're running a 400 or an 800, there's some places where you can't jump into the, to the inside lane. You've got to wait until you've run a certain amount of the race. Why is that? Because the lanes are different lengths. And you've got to compete according to the rules. And if you don't do that, and I think really in verse 5, that's really, he's talking about running, I think, more than anything. You're going to compete as an athlete, as a runner, and you're going to have to do it correctly or you're not going to get the crown. So very similar ideas here. 
Do whatever you need to do to train to win the crown and keep the rules. In other words, discipline, spiritual discipline. Today, a lot of things are focused on the spiritual. I don't think it's, it's a surprise to us. It was the same in Paul's day. So Paul comments on it, and it's just as true today as it was then. Look at verse 8. For bodily discipline, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. So working out the body in the gym, that's an exact rendering. Working out the body in the gym, and again, everyone knows what he's talking about. There's some profit to it, but only a little. What's that mean? Well, it's just for the physical body only. It's just for the now. Now, that doesn't mean there's no benefit, because we know there is. It isn't calling into question the motives for working out. It isn't saying, don't do it. It's just a matter of perspective. It's just taking all of the benefits of physically working out and wrapping them up in the right size box. And it's a small box. It's not a big one. Okay? That's the idea. The benefits are temporary and they're brief. The caution then is, that the world spends hours and hours and hours on something that is so short-lived. And that becomes its own litmus test, beloved. You evaluate where the time is spent. And how long does that last in that investment? Now, look at the rest of verse 8. But godliness, he says, is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present and also for the life to come. Not only are the benefits permanent and eternal, as opposed to temporary and brief, godliness, it says, is profitable for what? What's it say? All things. It's profitable for all things. So in other words, there is no limit on the benefits of spiritual discipline. If you want to work on something, Paul says, work on that. Beyond just the physical, it's profitable not just to the body, but the body and the soul. It's profitable not just for a brief time, but for a lifetime and for eternity, you see? If you're going to train yourself, if you're going to go into training, if you're going to make a determination to do something for yourself, don't make your first priority be to go to the gym three times a week. That isn't the priority. Unless that fits somewhere at the bottom of your list. Make a resolution to spend time in the Word of God every day and build up godliness and spiritual reaction time and stamina and memory and on and on. And it's part of the benefit that we know is part of the physical. Make that part of the spiritual training. Make those types of results clear in your life. And you can certainly transfer that commitment to training your family in godliness too, beloved. You know, I tell a lot of young fathers, if you have young ones waiting at home for you, don't stop off at the gym. That's the bottom priority. Okay? My boys know that I've, I've been in the gym most of my life, but they've always said, Dad, was there any time when you, weren't, when you didn't work out? Because they know I go all the time. I said, yeah, you know when? When you were little. I stopped going to all that stuff. I didn't go play golf. I didn't, go, I didn't play any organized sports, church teams, city league. Why? If you've got somebody waiting at home and saying, where's Daddy? Daddy needs to be there because part of your legacy, beloved, in godliness is going to be creating godliness in them and raising them up to see a faithful servant, someone who now can be plugged in somewhere else and is ministering to people around them. That's your job. And part of your legacy is that. It has 
benefit for the present life and also for the life to come. So here's the questions. Is working out in godliness a blessing now? Of course. How? A rich, fulfilled, blessed, fruitful, effective, useful life now. When the Lord can bless, can strengthen, encourage, expand for your family, for the kingdom, for the Great Commission, as salt and light, as a starter, if you will, for the big plays for eternity, as counseling and encouragement, an impact player, the Lord can use you and move you around and put you where he needs you, and you can use those things that you've disciplined yourself to do to be, make him look wonderful. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Is working out in godliness a blessing for the life to come? Of course it is. How? These are gains you're taking with you into eternity. They're going to realistically be, beloved, mark this, the only things you will value. When you get into eternity, the disciplines you develop with Christ, the times you let Christ use you, those are the things you're going to desire most. Stop working out physically. A few years, you have nothing to show for it. Okay? That's how that works. Right? You, work, you can work out most of your young life, and then you stop working out, and five years from then, you aren't going to see anything. Not that you didn't get benefit from it. You did. It's just it's packaged in a lot smaller box, right? But whatever gains you make spiritually, those are yours, your victories, your sufferings that make for glorious uh, revelation of Jesus Christ, your legacy, your testimony, those people you witness to, that, that just keeps on giving. So make sure, beloved, your life is in the right balance. And just to wrap up, you don't want to be spending far more time exercising your body than exercising in regard to your soul. That's the issue, okay? So he just lays out a very simple principle, and everyone can understand it, especially those who understand physical workouts. If you want to be spiritually fit, and it's a command, and you'll have to work out spiritually. A good servant of Christ Jesus is the one who's disciplined into godliness. It's just so obvious. Much like the previous statement, if you want to have anything to say to nourish the church, you're going to have to be nourished yourself. Or, or what you're discerning. Lord wants you discerning. He wants you understanding error. And then you have to warn others when you understand that error. If you want to be healthy, eat the right things. Avoid the wrong things. Have a pure mind. Say yes to the truth and no to falsehood. Just very, very, very basic, very needful now more than ever. Now more than ever. I was reading in my quiet time just a couple days ago, Psalm chapter 12, verse 1. I just thought, you know, David was crying out to the Lord even in his time, and he said this. He said, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Boy, you don't want that in the church, beloved. Faithful are disappearing among the sons of men for sure in the world, but in the church, those are the faithful men. Those are the ones doing what they need to do. Those are the ones disciplining their body and disciplining their mind and having a pure mind, excluding falsehood and worldliness, embracing truth, establishing a legacy, a quickness, an ability to respond. These are things that the Lord desires for us. And no doubt, Timothy was doing, and no doubt you are. All the more as you see the day approaching. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. We're out of time. Lord, we thank you today for our time around the Word. We're so grateful for it. We're so grateful for its encouragement. The sacrifices I know many of our men and women make here uh, underneath the radar, nobody knows. The things they're saying no to and the things they're embracing and doing that are hard and expensive and 
and cost, the discipline that they're putting to work in their life, saying no to things that shouldn't be there, having victory over sin, discipling little ones, teaching faithfully, spending time in the Word before they go to minister to the class or the small group, and wanting to master it. Lord, we're so grateful for that. I pray that you'll continue to produce that in our men and our women. Those who serve the church are of the highest calling and have been empowered with the most power, I pray that they'll be especially effective in doing those things for the kingdom work. And Father, we thank you that all this is about Jesus, all of it. We thank you for him. We thank you that he has reconciled us. We wouldn't understand any of this. We wouldn't understand this kingdom if he hadn't given us a new mind, put in us the Holy Spirit. So it's for his glory, all for his glory, not I, but Christ. So grateful for him. Lord, we thank you that he sits at your right hand and makes intercession for us even right now. As the Holy Spirit is praying along with us, making understandable our prayers, praying as we ought, so grateful you take care of us in this way. And then you ask us to respond by being disciplined in spirit, by submitting ourselves and working out in those things that last, by putting away from ourselves things, things that influence us badly, wicked worldly things, things that aren't true. So Father, help us to respond as you'd like us to. And continue to use us and place us in positions where we can we can be effective for you. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, whom we long to see for his name's sake. And all God's people said, amen.